recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode 63 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan is an employment lawyer in Toronto, Canada, and I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter. You can find that newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend, and you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can also subscribe to our YouTube or SoundCloud channel, and you can get our newsletter as well. Sign up for that at prlawpodcast.club. Ewan, uh, today is... Uh, kind of a, a, a big day i would say it is the uh, 4th of july that's very true oh, yeah oh yes nice cam nice In very nice happy uh happy 4th of july to our neighbors from the south or for me it's the neighbor to the far east oddly enough but there you go <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's true. That's true. My neighbor to the south, and a happy, a happy belated uh, Canada Day, July first. Of course, is uh, is our fair nation's birthday, Cameron. So uh, yeah, it's been quite quite the weekend. A lot of fireworks going off. This, yeah, this I bet. And you know, um, I mean, Canada Day obviously not big over here. I mean, the Canadian expats obviously have it, but I mean. It competes with the Hong Kong Establishment Day when Hong Kong was given back to mainland China. So that happened on July 1st, 97. Uh, but this year was bigger, UN too, because it was the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party of China. And Did you get out and celebrate that? I, you know, it was interesting being uh, in Asia for that. I mean, obviously in Hong Kong, it's not. Um, there's not a lot of enthusiasm here, I would say. Um, you know, but in mainland China, it was a it was a it was a big deal. And I think, you know, we talk about communications on this show. The fact that, you know, the Communist Party has been able to basically meld itself or intertwine itself with the with the country uh, has been kind of a stroke of genius because it felt on the first like, you know, people in China were very proud of the country's accomplishments and, and how far it's come and of the Chinese nation and, you know, the Chinese civilization, which is normally not not celebrated in the context of a political party. Uh, but that's that's kind of where we're at at this point. How, how was the coverage back there? Well, I mean, yeah, we had some, of course, through through the Twitterverse, but I mean, pretty quiet around that that particular that particular issue other than sort of national newspapers. I don't think most Canadians are aware of that. Um, yeah, it was pretty big in yeah. the U.S. I, they had quite, quite, quite big coverage. Um, the New York Times had several days of coverage uh, leading up to it, but I wasn't sure, you know, how much it was covered in in Canada. Um, but here's you and what a lot of people were talking about uh, was some of the words of uh, President Xi Jinping in China. Uh, here's what he had to say: "Quote: We will not accept sanctimonious preaching from those who feel they have the right to lecture us." We have never bullied, oppressed, or subjugated the people of any other country, and we never will. By the same token, we will never allow anyone to bully, oppress, or subjugate China. Anyone who tries will find them on a collision course with a steel wall 
forged by 1.4 billion people. End quote. That's a pretty big steel wall. Pretty yeah. thick. Pretty strong. Hey, rousing, rousing words. Rousing words, right? Yeah, it's uh, that tone that it really got a lot of coverage, I think, because it was, um, yeah, it was very bombastic. And I mean, for people that don't follow China day to day, this is relatively new under this president. Uh, you know, in the past, China was kind of concerned about um, its reputation in the world and sort of how things worked. Um, but but this president feels like it's time to kind of throw off those shackles and they are powerful now and they can begin acting like it. So, yeah, we may look back at this speech in a few years. Uh, hopefully it's in a, in a good light. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. Cam, I, I read this great article in the uh, the New York Times about chance meetings at the office, right, mm-hmm. and the value of them, and it, and it sort of got me thinking about that idea. You know, this 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 sense of the the impromptu meeting that can occur in the office place, and how it's a great sort of hotbed for innovation and creativity, and whether or not there's actually any evidence to sort of back this up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's been a lot of people talking about it. So, you know, Tim Cook, the chief executive of Apple, you know, he said, quote, innovation isn't always a planned activity. It's bumping into each other over the course of the day and advancing an idea you just had. Um, similarly, Jamie, is it Dimon? Diamond? Diamond, yeah, Jamie Diamond. It's Diamond, mm-hmm. yep. chief executive of, at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. I mean, he sort of said something similar, um, you know, that working from home doesn't work for spontaneous idea generation. It doesn't work for culture. So, again, sort of singing the merits and the praises of that in-office meeting. Um, I mean, but what do you think, Cam? Do you, do you really believe that these sort of impromptu meetings – in the office place actually boost innovation and creativity? Yeah, this is a question that's coming up a lot now. Uh, also in light of sort of Apple's decision, which we discussed to let people work from home twice a week uh, and come into the office three times a week. And that's something that the leadership there cited as, as a reason is, you know, innovation and those chance encounters and, and serendipity and things like that. Um, I, I don't know. I, I feel like people are really projecting a lot of this. Um, and I feel like this has come through the, the pandemic sort of just in general. I mean, if you listen to, for instance, somebody like Bill Maher, who clearly loves to be around people and loves coming in uh, and talking and being social. And, you know, on his show, he talked repeatedly during the pandemic about how difficult that was and how he didn't like being stuck at home. And so he talks about sort of the importance of getting together as well. I and mean, he really sees it from that perspective whereas others enjoyed being on their own enjoyed being at home enjoyed not having to have these social interactions um and maybe worked better because they they didn't have to do that i don't think it's a one-size-fits-all I, I i'm just a bit skeptical that there is any meaningful difference in something as specific as innovation and also something as broad as innovation I, like i would like to see data on it because i just feel like right now people just are giving their thoughts without much data there 
Uh, great point. I'd like to see some data too. And I, I went looking for some good. I couldn't, good. I couldn't find, I couldn't find any, um, on the contrary, I found, uh, some evidence that suggests that, you know, the complete contrary position that in office meetings and in office work may actually stifle creativity and innovation because typically if these meetings are to occur, you know, they require individuals working in sort of specific and structured parameters, right? They have to work in the same physical office. They have to be working the same days of the week. They have yep. to be working in the same hours of the day. These aren't exactly the hallmarks of the of the creative process, Cam. You know, I, exactly. I think of this sort of hark back to, you know, episodes of Mad Men, right? Where you see the creatives that are kind of lounging around uh, on, on, on the couches, with a drink in their hand and a, and a, and a joint in the other into the wee hours of the morning, waiting for some, the, the creative juices to get flowing. I, I, these are very, very sort of difficult things to, to fit within the very, very square parameters of a nine to five workday. Right. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and also, and I use this as my own, my own example. I mean, I started at my current job during the pandemic. I have people who report to me directly, like I am their boss in other cities, you know, Beijing, Shenzhen, uh, in California. And I've never met them in person once. We've never seen each other in the flesh. We've never shook hands. We, we haven't done anything like that. And yet we've been working together for the past year. And I think it has been innovative. I think we've done good work. I think, you know, we, we communicate well, at least from, from my uh, perspective. And um, it, it's been an eye opener for me because I, I doubt I would have said that that's okay a year ago or a year and a half ago, but it's worked out far better than I than I could have imagined. And we still talk a lot. Like, and just because you're not in the office doesn't necessarily mean that you're not having these these quick conversations. It, it is part of a culture of an office or a workplace because you you can still. And so in our case, you know, we have a lot of calls that are just five minute calls or three minute calls. You know, we, we use a, a meeting software, not not Zoom. We use a, a proprietary one, but we can hop on and off there all day uh, as if they're working right beside me. So for me, it has been OK. And that's kind of why I'm skeptical and would like to see data. That said, I don't think it works for every sector. You know, I'm fully aware that there might be some where you do require people to be physically closer. But I would like to see data on, on sort of who, who that is and, and why. You definitely touched on one of sort of the key issues there that with with the tech that we have access to now, we're getting pretty darn close to replicating that in-office environment to sort of sufficiently deal with those day-to-day requirements anyway, right? And, it, it, you know, it sort of got me thinking about, you know, we've, there's been a lot of talk about different hybrid models, work from home a couple days a week, work in the office a couple days a week. But, you know, what about just thinking completely outside of that box, whereby, you know, if, if you can sort of deal with the bulk of day-to-day work from home rather than from the office. And if there are, you know, we're talking about roles where the demands of creativity and sort of innovation really are key to the to the process. You know, perhaps you can move to almost to something like where once every other week you get everybody in a room or you get a f- groups of people in a room um, to sort of really, really hash out those sort of innovative, creative ideas where it's sort of been almost pent up over a period of time. Because again, I think it's just the idea of trying to get away from this sort of very, very square boxed framework 
of what that process can and should look like when really what we're talking about, and you sort of talked about, can you point to any data? And, and again, any of our listeners, if you're aware of any of any data that sort of supports this argument, I'd love to see it because um, I certainly haven't seen any. But really what we're talking about, everybody's almost stabbing in the dark around this issue, right? Mm-hmm. Of, you know, how do you, how do you really sort of empirically and logically address the creative process? It is a very, very difficult sort of intangible thing to put your finger on to begin with, right? Yeah. And also uh, not all jobs. In fact, I would suggest a uh, few jobs overall require a creative process. <laughs> I mean, this is, we're talking about very specific kinds of, of, of roles here. Uh, you know, a lot of the times, you know, people are working. It is a a structured work day with a series of tasks to be completed, you know, or data to be entered, or whatever, whatever it might be. And and so I I don't think we can lump all all work into one bucket here. Uh, and I think that happens a lot too. Like there are sort of sweeping generalizations made. You know, when, when pe- people obviously work differently. I should mention on on the issue of, of creativity. So Jeff Jeff Tweedy, the 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 lead singer of Wilco. I heard him interviewed uh, actually several months ago on on Fresh Air, but he was on the Ezra Klein show the other day, and it's because he wrote a book called How to Write One Song. Are you familiar with this, Ewan? I am. I, I haven't I haven't read it. I'm you know I'm a long long time Wilco fan. I've seen them several times in concert. I'm a big Jeff Tweedy fan. So yeah, I am yeah. familiar with it. I haven't read it though. I've seen them in concert too. Anyway. So it's about the creative process, and he really pours cold water on the fact that, like you and you, you talked about madmen, you know, sitting in their office late at night, you know, like he he really pushes back hard on the idea that you you need to be in a certain environment or you need to have suffered, you know, or felt loss or anything like that in order to create art. And he said it's actually a habit and a mind sort of a structure in your mind to do this. And he actually in this interview with Ezra Klein, he broke down a couple of ways that you can increase your own creativity and it was fascinating like actual practical ways and so that that also got me thinking about this subject like are we overthinking this a bit like do you need to be around people or or not i mean i I don't know but if we look at it another way just like how do we generate creativity why don't we start with that question instead and if it leads us to communal thought sharing in one destination. Well, then that's something that, that could be considered. Um, but I feel like we're kind of going into this backwards. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And and the subject itself got me thinking about just the idea of meetings in general, like stripping it right back. The idea of workplace issues being addressed by a group of people sitting in a room together um, and how effective is that is that process. And, you know, it, it got me thinking about the idea that employers really need to consider not just the benefits of holding a meeting, an actual in-person meeting, but also think about the consequences of doing that, right? I mean, what could potentially be lost by addressing this particular issue over the course of an hour in a boardroom? You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. issues like, like who actually needs to be there? I mean, if you have a boardroom full of say, 10 people, for example, that's a lot of workers who are sitting and listening as opposed to being productive um, in other ways, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, and who's actually participating in these meetings? Who isn't participating? And then we sort of get into that whole sort of introvert extrovert dynamic. And I'm sure you've sat in countless meetings, Cam, where 
it's always the same two or three people who are contributing and the same two or three people who are sitting there keeping their mouths shut. Um, and it really sort of leads to that idea of, do we really need to be here? Could this be dealt with more effectively by other means, be it an instant message or an email exchange um, or any number of, of alternatives that are now available, right? Yep. Yep. And I think this is just getting to the heart of the matter. Like we had the pandemic, obviously it, it turned, you know, the workplace upside down. Uh, it's affected all of us. And so what can we take out of it for the workplace? And yeah, we have been focusing on this. How many days a week should you be in the office? Do you have to be in the office? Um, but I think now's a good time to look at all of these things, right? Like you say, you in meetings, like, do we need as many meetings? Do we need as many people in them? Do we need fewer or more? Um, you know, how do we want to structure this? Because you're right, there are some people that are introverted that are not going to contribute. Maybe they still need to know what that information is. Maybe there's another way to get them that information, you know, where they don't have to come to the meeting. I, I don't know, but I, I find this a really exciting time as somebody who, you know, has worked in an office for many years. And, and I've thought even many years ago that the way offices work are quite antiquated, really. And they are inefficient, you know, having everybody sit around and, and work on a computer, um, you know, with group meetings, it just feels inefficient to me. And then trying to fit everything into a few hours in the daytime during the week. Um, all, all aspects of this to me are questionable. And so I'm glad that people are starting to take a look at, at the broader questions related to it. Yeah, I also really like the 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 idea of the equality that is available or, or the the potential of equality, almost like this egalitarianism that sort of exists in like an online instant message forum, right? As opposed to physically sitting in a meeting, you know, we sort of talk about that ex extrovert introvert dynamic. Um, you know, you're not sort of you're not concerned the same way about are people going to look at me the wrong way if I say the right or the wrong thing or trying to speak too much or trying to speak too little when it's in text, right? Everybody's sort of on a level or at least more of a level playing field, right? And I think a lot of those sort of anxieties and insecurities about what's my role in this, what can I contribute, what shouldn't I contribute, a lot of that stuff goes out the window. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't things that are obviously lost between the lines. Um, I mean, context is important, and sometimes that can be very, very difficult to achieve um, over text and, and the written word. But I really, really like this idea that everybody coming into that quote unquote meeting, if that's what it is in sort of a virtual forum, they are on more of a level playing field or is, or, or am I just imagining this? Do you sort of see it the same way, Cam? Um, yeah, I do. And I think also like the issue of public speaking, a lot of people don't like standing up, you know, and speaking in front of a group of people, especially if it's their peers or their, their colleagues. Um, even if they don't have to stand up, even if they're sitting down around a table, a lot of people are reluctant to, to speak out of fear um, it's a very common fear. Whereas, yeah, if you're on a video call or you're on just an audio call, even a lot of that gets taken away because you don't have people sitting there looking at you. You know, you are in, in, a, in ideally a comfortable environment, either your home or your own office somewhere. And it should feel a little differently and maybe a little less oppressive. And I mean, oppressive in terms of feeling not like the company is oppressing staff. And, and I think that helps. And I, I can tell you, it probably helps me even. I mean, I, I like I really like attending meetings over a conference call or even video. And we use video maybe 20% of the time. Oftentimes we're connecting through Tencent meeting and we're all just talking to each other, right? 
but we, you know, the other benefit there too is we can also share screens, which I absolutely, I mean, this is also very common now. You want to show somebody something. You can show everybody very easily. That's something you can't do in a meeting room. You can't throw anyone's computer onto the screen. Actually, technically, this is becoming more possible, but a lot of workplaces haven't got it yet. Um, but but little things like that, that just make it a little more casual, a little, little easier to navigate and a little pressure off. And hopefully that generates a little more engagement. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've also sort of touched on another issue here, which is that most people don't know how to run an effective meeting. Am I right? Yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, they Good really, point. really don't. Um, you know, here, and look, let me just throw out a couple basic pointers here and jump in if you have any other ones, or if you disagree with any of these, Cam. But, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of this stuff is basic stuff. But hey, if you're listening and you're planning to run a meeting, you know, maybe you want to write some of these down. So, first of all, mm-hmm. ensure that everyone knows specifically what they're meeting for. Now, you might think that sounds obvious, but you'd be surprised. Um, Also, make sure that you're only inviting the people that actually need to be there. If you need to have a follow up meeting with more sort of peripheral employees, that's fine. Have a peripheral, you know, have a follow up meeting. That's okay. So I think this Um, one. Yeah, this is the tough one, though, because who needs to be at a meeting? Like, So if you're doing a project or if there's some task or some whatever it might be, and you you have people working on that project, do you need all of them in the meeting room? Theoretically, all of them need to know what's happening or what should happen or what the problem is or whatever. But do you need them all in that meeting? I think this this is where people get tripped up a little bit because ideally you could just bring in a couple of the key players for that meeting and, and hash something out and they could then communicate to the rest of the team. But oftentimes I think people think, well, like, why not just have everybody come and then everyone's up to date right away and we don't need to do a secondary kind of update with the staff. And I don't know, again, I don't know which one is better, but I do know that these meetings are too many people usually, a lot of people not contributing. So there's something wrong with this. And I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. And I think that the question you can ask yourself in, because you're right, often that's a difficult call. If, you know, let's say these sort of five peripheral team players and you're sort of debating whether or not they should physically be present in the meeting, if you can ask yourself, are they going to be in a position to contribute anything to that meeting mm-hmm. in terms of a question being asked question. or yeah. response being given? If, 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 you can, if you can confidently answer no, then I would think it goes to the second question, which is, Will they be able to better spend that half an hour or hour, however long a meeting might be, working on another task than sitting there and listening to the information that's being conveyed in that meeting? Now, again, these questions aren't always clear cut, but I think they're questions that need to be asked as opposed to just sending out, you know, a meeting invite and CCing every member of the team as if that's somehow a solution to an effective problem or, or an effective solution to a problem, because it, it more often than not, it, it isn't right. It's not the mm-hmm. best way to go about it. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree that those are good questions for people to keep in mind. Uh, even for me uh, on meetings. Yeah. Good advice. I had, I had one more cam. All right, go for it. Fire <laughs> one, away. One more, you know, if, if you're going to invite people to a meeting, perhaps ask them to bring some ideas to contribute. If you want them there and the intention is to have them there as participants, then give them an opportunity to participate. And again, that sort of goes back to the first point, which is ensure that everyone knows specifically what they're meeting for. 
Why are they in that room? Why do you want them in that room? And if you want them in that room, put them in a position where they can contribute and add value to the meeting. Because if not, then there's yep. really no, they, they really shouldn't be there in the first place. And and this is something that I do uh, exactly as you say, in fact. Uh, one example, we had a, a meeting regarding our content uh, pipeline uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it was going to be uh, you know an hour-long kind of brainstorm, set the parameters for how we're going to engage online, so on and so forth. And we told everyone on, on, on the staff, like, you're coming to this meeting, bring ideas. Like, we are going to ask you for your thoughts and for your ideas. And so, you know, make sure you bring them along to the meeting. And, and I do think that's a great way to, to do it because then people understand that they, they are a stakeholder, for one, and that their opinions are going to be sought and that they're valuable. Uh, and they have that information in advance. It's not something you can tell them five minutes before the meeting. Uh, it's something you should tell them at the time of booking that meeting so people are aware and know of what their expectations are. Um, so, yeah, that's a great one, Ewan. Yeah, and it also then puts you in a position to be able to say at the end of the meeting to have some actual objectives, enumerated objectives for people to take away from the meeting, right? So you're not left in this position of, oh, we'll just circle back on this one, which, you know, really is almost corporate speak for, you know, I'll, I'll see you sometime next year. I mean, we'll circle yeah. back. You know, really ever, ever, ever actually happens. Right. But if you do, if you sort of give them, you ask them to bring those ideas to contribute after you clearly detailed what the meeting is about, then that makes it easier to create that list of objectives for everyone to take away from the meeting to ensure that it wasn't a complete waste of time and that something will actually come for it from it in, in sort of you know, getting to the solution to whatever your problem or the, the project. Yeah. When, when a meeting is done, I mean, people usually just want to move on. But one thing that, that's often overlooked is either the meeting minutes or the next steps or whatever it might be. And and the people that have organized meetings that are the best meetings that I have attended are those who, you know, have an agenda for the meeting and have made clear the expectations. But when the meeting is over, following up with the minutes and following up with these are the these are the people that said they would do something, right? Or this is the next steps out of this meeting. This person is, is supposed to research A, and this person will talk to this other department about B, you know? So it's, it's really clear after the meeting who has to do what. Then you have something to take away from the meeting. Then you can look at it and say, okay, that was, that was beneficial because we figured this stuff out and now we know what our next steps are in this project or in this process. And I know nobody likes to do meeting minutes. I know it's a bit drab and dull, but I do think it's important to close the loop. If, if you're giving people the all of the information at the beginning about what's expected and then at the end of the meeting also what's expected after the meeting. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. All right, you know, I've got a couple of smaller things to, to raise this week. I, I feel like it's been busy. The news cycle has been busy for the last couple of weeks, which is which is good. And I think we're really getting back into the into the swing of things. Um, and the first one, uh, LinkedIn, you made news last week because they have introduced pronouns, optional pronouns on your personal profile on LinkedIn. So they're offering. Really, I didn't know that. They are offering she and her, he and him, they and them. And then a custom option. 
So you can actually enter what you prefer. This is obviously, uh, you know, a, a big step. Uh, LinkedIn had done some surveys around this and found that 70% of job seekers believe it's important that recruiters, hiring managers, peers, etc. know their gender pronouns. Uh, and 72% of hiring managers agree and believe it shows respect. When you look back at sort of past movements, social movements, you know, this has come about quite quickly in my view. And I think that's a good thing. And, and I have noticed, and I noticed as of probably last summer or last spring, just having pronouns in email signature files. And that is also something that I, I see a lot now that I saw, I think for the first time last year. I mean, for sure I saw them last year, but I can't remember if I saw them in 2019. Um, but it's just a lot more common for that and for people to declare what their pronouns are. And so, yeah, this is this is progress. Any thoughts? Yeah, look, I, I think that's great. I wasn't aware of, of, um, of, of that particular new tweak in LinkedIn. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm seeing it more and more. Um, in, I mean, notably in, in email signatures, be it from clients or other counsel. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I, th I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I think it's great that LinkedIn is, is introducing it particularly because so much of the contact that you have with individuals through LinkedIn are, are they're strangers. You have no relationship with them. Um, and you know, these are precisely the sorts of situations where, where pronouns can really be an issue. So why not, why not introduce that? I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's good for LinkedIn. It's good for the brand. Um, and yep. it's, it's great for, for, for its user base. So I'm, I'm, I'm all in favor. And that's why I brought it up. I think, you know, in terms of communications for LinkedIn, this is a, this is a win, you know, it gets them out ahead of it. Uh, you know, Facebook ha has done this already, so, I mean, LinkedIn is a little bit slower, I guess. Uh, but at the same time, like, here they are. And, um, you know, overall, it's been fairly proactive, I think, from them. And I think it does reflect well on the company. So they're going to get some some wins, some communication wins here. Um, the second item, Ewan, is really uh, the Teneo CEO uh, has stepped down in a cheating scandal. I don't know if you caught this. Uh, this is Declan Kelly. And so he, he's sort of famous for being a PR guy. He uh, runs his own PR firm. Uh, in the U.S., and he was really close with with Bill Clinton. Worked with him. He was in the Obama administration, so he's a really plugged in guy. But he also sat on the board of this like nonprofit. It's an anti poverty charity charity called uh, Global Citizen. And in May, there was a party that he attended uh, in California, and I guess acted really inappropriately at this party towards women and. You know, this this came out and eventually Taneo and Kelly had to part ways. So on Tuesday last week, Taneo said that Kelly was stepping down as the CEO. And this is what the company said in the statement, Ewan. The Taneo board of directors regrets to announce that Declan Kelly has advised it of his decision to resign from his role as the company's chairman and CEO. Now, apparently at this event in California, he was drunk at this party and acted inappropriately with a number of, of women. And, you know, apparently a lot of this behavior included sort of the non-consensual touching of a number of women, according to the Financial Times. Uh, page six, you and you'll be familiar with in New York, was, was obviously all over this story. And you know what? 
Kelly put out a statement and you and I, you know, I love going through these. I know you love commenting on these, especially when we're dealing with men who kind of got caught of acting inappropriately or acting, you know, in, in, in a way that is not at all tolerated, especially at sort of big, big companies. Here's what his statement said, Ewan. On May 2nd, I made an inadvertent public and embarrassing mistake for which I took full responsibility and apologized to those directly affected, as well as my colleagues and clients. A campaign against the reputation of our firm has followed and may even continue in the coming days. However, regardless of the veracity of any such matters, I do not want them to be an ongoing distraction to the running of our company. In order to protect the employees of Taneo and its clients, and with my family's strong support, I have decided to leave the company and resign as chairman and CEO. I'm going to skip toward the end here, Ewan. Here's the last bit of his, his, his note. Over the recent days, I've received countless messages of support from my colleagues, clients, public figures, and people who know me well, both personally and professionally. Their support and trust is what counts the most. I will forever be grateful to them all. Any thoughts on his statement? Yeah, I don't I don't like this statement, Cam. I'm sure you're probably not surprised, yeah. not surprised to hear that. I mean, here's and here's my my concern with it. He opens right with the on May 2nd, I made an inadvertent, inadvertent public and embarrassing mistake for which I took full responsibility and apologized to those directly affected. So first of all, he's not actually apologizing in his statement. He's mm -hmm. saying I've already I apologize to those people that are in, in concern. I don't need to apologize further. I also don't like the fact that he calls it an inadvertent yes. public and embarrassing mistake. You know what? Drunken misconduct at a party as an executive, that's a lot more than inadvertent public and an, an embarrassing mistake. Um, so he doesn't he's not using the right language to own up to it. And then the rest of the statement is really just, you know, some sort of almost attempt to fall on the sword for the benefit of the company yeah. to protect the brand of the company. And again, doesn't speak to the actual misconduct. And, you know, look, Cam, this is always the, the Christmas episode of, of this show. <laughs> Inevitably, every year will be about the holiday parties. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this before. Don't drink at these events, whether they're holiday parties or any time you're out in public acting in a professional capacity. Stay away from alcohol. Just don't do it. Because mm -hmm. these are the sort of sorts of situations that happen. But if it if it does, own up to it. And he's not owning up to it in this statement, or at least not not the way that I read it, Cam. Absolutely. So the first line, yeah, inadvertent is the word that, you know, really bothers me because all mistakes are inadvertent. I mean, inadvertent means like it you didn't mean for this to happen. And of course, like a mistake wouldn't be a mistake if you meant for it to happen. A mistake is when something happens that you didn't mean or, or some other consequence that wasn't intended. So yeah, inadvertent, I don't like that word there at all. And you're right. He puts this in past tense. So he said, I, I made this inadvertent public and embarrassing mistake for which I took full responsibility and apologized, meaning it's over. Nothing to see here. I already dealt with this. I already apologized to them. You can go away. I don't need to, to do any further, which, yeah, is not a, not a good look. 
And then you're right. The fact that he basically says that he is protecting the company. I mean, he does say that. He uses that word, protect. He's protecting the employees of Taneo and its clients. Well, obviously he's not. <laughs> I mean, look what, look what he did. That was not protecting the employees or his clients. And then with my family's strong support. Again, this looks to me like he is basically trying to tell the world that his family, he's come clean with his family about this and his family is still with him and they support him and, you know, they're going to support him in his post-Taneo career. And so I found that to be quite defensive as well. Yeah, I didn't like the tone here at all. I, I just found it really kind of... I always say, right, you have to you have to empathize. You have to tell the reader or the listener or, or your public or your customers that you understand the gravity of what happened or what you did. And he doesn't hear at all. He completely misses the boat. He looks kind of petulant even to the sense that this happened... You know, he's saying, I apologize for it. Leave me alone. Everything's fine. But I'm, I'm going to leave anyway to protect my own team. And yeah, it just uh, leaves a really sort of sour taste. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and also, I mean, from a PR perspective and a legal perspective, he has a bit of an opportunity here because alcoholism, I mean, it's, it's, it's an addiction and it's deemed to be a disability and it requires accommodation. And if you if you went to your employer and said, hey, I'm an alcoholic, Here's what I require in terms of accommodation. I need to go to rehab. I need to do these things. I mean, there's all kinds of things that your employer can do to assist you in that regard, whether you're an executive or, you know, or a junior employee. I mean, he could have he could have taken that that step and addressed it and said, look, you know, I have a problem. My, you know, I've been drinking too much lately. I'm going to address this. I'm going to go to rehab. I'm going to do these things. I'm, you know, incredibly embarrassed. My conduct was grossly inappropriate. It will never happen again. I am taking steps to address it. He had an opportunity to do that. And yet that, that doesn't appear anywhere here. It's simply mm -hmm. that, well, I'm going to fall on the sword for the better of betterment of my company. And I have no need to apologize to anybody that I haven't already apologized to. Yep. Um, just, you know, just really the wrong approach. And from a PR guy, I mean, that's what's so, yeah. that's really what's so jarring about all of this. It's like you deal yeah. in crisis communication. You should know these things. I mean, presumably you do. So how is it that this is the statement that was ultimately issued? Yeah. Hubris is what, what the problem is here. Um, but, you know, Bloomberg made a, a point and it was about sort of a post me too world and how like these kinds of things now are being brought up. They're being mentioned. They're being covered that, you know, even if you're a, a rich and powerful CEO or chairman or whatever you might be, you can't get away with this stuff anymore. Uh, and it's a it's a it's a good reminder. And I think a necessary reminder that this stuff gets called out and that, you um, you know, it did cost him his job. And I, I think it should have considering, you know, what's alleged here and what he's sort of admitting to. So yeah, it's definitely it's a serious infraction. So, you know, and there was one other thing I wanted to mention uh, this week, you and just because I found it was a, an, an interesting move. And, and again, I have to, this has nothing to do with the company that I work for, but it is a competitor of the company I work for. So I do want to declare that uh, right off the top, although I have nothing to do with with this, but I wanted to flag it. Uh, this is Alibaba, which is the largest e-commerce company in, in China. And, you know, on, on July 2nd, Ewan, the Financial Times published a story and the headline was Alibaba's Jack Ma and Joe Tsai pledge shares to global banks. And I guess Alibaba didn't like this coverage and it published a rebuttal on its website that really lashed out at the FT and included some of the correspondence between the FT 
and Alibaba. And they took a very hard hard line on this. Here's what part of it said, Ewan. So, quote, We take issue with the innuendos implied by the misleading characterizations of ordinary financial planning activities of our company's founders. Prior to publication of the article, we provided responses to the Financial Times to clarify their questions. However, the Financial Times chose to ignore the fact that Jack Ma has no outstanding loans collateralized by Alibaba shares. In the interest of providing more information and transparency to Alibaba's shareholders, below is our response to the Financial Times that was delivered prior to the publication of their story. This is a power move, and you know, Alibaba has done it. This is not the first time this has been done, though. Um, I think I mentioned on a previous show that Coinbase went ahead and and front ran a New York Times story that they really disagreed with. I do think we are at a point where companies are getting frustrated uh, with some of the coverage, with some of the ways that they're being treated, and are now not shying away of doing their own publishing and kind of exposing how the reporters are behaving in the relationship too. It's an interesting development, and I think we're going to see more of it. Yeah, I suspect you're right. And again, companies, they're well within their rights to defend themselves. And why should they be at the beck and call of of major media um, and at the whims of major media if, if they want to push their own particular perspective? Speaking even now, like uh, personally, you know, the media industry is is difficult and there are a lot of, you know, salaries are not very high. Um, there's a lot of less experienced reporters that are in more senior positions. And because it's a, it's a tough industry, it's a tough business to, to be a publisher. Um, there's all kinds of risk involved. And it's a it's an industry that has seen, you know, increased competition, you know, across the board. And you know, the, the media companies are not just looking at other media companies as a competition, like Netflix is competition, Amazon, like anywhere you spend time is competition to, for a news organization. And so the result of that has been, at least in my view, yeah, there, there have been some declining kind of standards and things like that. Um, I think companies are seeing this, you know, everywhere. It's certainly something that we see uh, over here and in dealing with some of the U.S. publications in particular. So it's a tough environment. But I, I think a few years ago, if a company would have done this, it would have been really a risky thing to do. But I, I do feel like that this barrier is kind of slowly being taken down. And, and now it's becoming more of an understandable thing to do. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, when reporters are reaching out, they're doing so to, to you know, make companies accountable, make leaders accountable for their decisions, for, for the way that the companies behave, which is absolutely correct. That's the role of the press. Um, but I also think this way sort of makes journalists accountable as well for what they're, what they're doing, what they're reporting, how they're going about things. And so I, I don't personally see it as a negative thing. If I was a reporter, I would think this is awful. But, I, you know, on this side of the, of the fence, and even just generally speaking, in terms of the state of the journalism industry today, I just think that this is this is something that um, is not a bad thing at all. Yeah, and I mean, with the pro proliferation of journalism, right, and the complete, just the lowering of the bar in terms of the quality, um, I, I think, yeah, companies effectively are left with no 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 other choice. I mean, we we talked about that the story of ronaldo the you know the international football store star allegedly tanking the coca-cola stock because a, a a few you know um news sources picked it up and ran the story when in fact it turned out to be a complete and utter fiction 
But these are the sorts of things that companies are having to deal with. So they do need to take a more aggressive position. If, if only just, you know, out of self-preservation, you can't simply sit back and, and let the media run amok um, when your company, company's at jeopardy, right? Yep, absolutely. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PRN Law Podcast. Okay, Ewan. What do you have? I'm I'm talking about Mark Marin Cam oh, and really? the WTF podcast. Yeah, um, you know it, it's funny. I know we've we've I know you're a fan of Mark Marin and and the WTF podcast. It's one of those ones that I go back to sort of every few months. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Just, actually, know, yeah. Who, who who's who's he interviewed recently? Yeah. Um, and and I did that uh, um, last week. And it's, you know, what do I think it was June 28th or something. He interviewed Quentin Tarantino, um, one of the most recent episodes. Yeah, I've seen that. In fact, I want to listen to that, but I have not yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm not, you know, I know that people out there are fanatical about Quentin Tarantino. I mean, his fans are super fans. Um, You know, they're not, they're not the sort of fans that kind of admire him lightly. I'm Mm -hmm. not one of those individuals. Um, I'm not, you know, crazy about Quentin Tarantino movies. I like some of Quentin Tarantino's movies, Um, but this was a really, really interesting interview for a whole host of reasons but one of the things that i thought was most interesting was that both mark and quentin were sort of caught up in this very nostalgic idea of what the male sort of film star was in the 70s right and there was sort of this lament for actors like clint eastwood and charles bronson these sort of hardened hardened strong silent types um, that you used to see a lot of on the screen and we don't really see them anymore. Um, and, you know, Marin and Tarantino almost take the position that we probably won't see them again because they're not even really deemed to be sort of socially acceptable anymore. Um, but it was interesting that their upbringing, uh, the, the films of, of their day, those were the sorts of men and characters that they looked up to, which is markedly different than who you or I may have looked up to in film stars and certainly markedly different than what sort of uh, millennials and Gen Z might might look up to. Anyway, a whole host of really cool topics that they they tackle in this episode. Anything to do with um, nostalgia or looking back to another time, I'm always so skeptical of that. Like, I don't like it when somebody says, you know, music's not the way it was, you know, back in the whatever, 90s or 60s or, you know, some some other era. Like, it's just we're getting older. Like, it's just the world changes and it's different now than it was when we grew up. And it's less familiar also, kind of the older you get. I just feel like this is kind of a, a universal thing. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. Uh, I think it's I think it's always a little a little weird. I mean, I think that is sort of what Hollywood is. Right. I mean, Hollywood is sort of a nostalgia act, Um, whether it's looking back to sort of the golden age or the, the, you know, the 20s. And we've talked about Manx, which was, you know, nominated for Best Picture last year is really sort of this love letter to the old days of Hollywood. And then, of course, Tarantino talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which he's gone on to write an actual book, right? There's now an actual book that he wrote. Yeah, the book came after Um, the movie, yeah. Yeah, right, for for his film. Um, 
anyway, all of that being said, a very, very interesting interview and, and, and worth your time. All right. I'm going a little bit more serious. You and we, this has not come up on the show yet, uh, but it seems to be all over U.S. media. Critical race theory. This is the, uh, the hot subject in the United States and in the Fox News world and the uh, right wing echo chamber. Critical race theory is becoming a, a, a it's a real hot button issue. And uh, this week or, or recently, NPR's Fresh Air kind of interviewed a, a reporter who's been f- following this for a while and has been going to school board meetings in all of these communities and, and talking to parents. And it's become a real division in, in these communities and even on things as mundane as, as school boards and, and local councils. But I think a lot of the time, like what critical race theory is, is misunderstood. Uh, the background where it came from is misunderstood. And I figured that like uh, my introduction to it was in the back and forth battle over whether it should be taught rather than what is it exactly. And I think if this is a subject that interests anybody, and I mean on the on the critical race theory itself, but also just how how something becomes such a touchstone or such a division in, in society. This is really an interesting episode of Fresh Air to to listen to. It's it's startling what is happening in the U.S. in schools, and and I think this is this is one that I turned on and I really paid attention to the entire time. It was really really interesting, and I think we're going to see a lot more on critical race theory too uh, in the weeks and months ahead. Oh well, yeah, absolutely. Um... But yeah, this sounds this sounds really, really interesting. I will check that out. And I mean, look, I mean, here's the thing. Anytime you describe something that has the word theory attached to it, <laughs> and then you try to reduce it to a 15 second soundbite, you are discrediting whatever that actual theory may be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> be it be it something of hard science, be it something of political or of or a philosophical or theoretical nature. Um People just shouldn't do that. And unfortunately, <laughs> you know, the, the news and the echo chamber, it, it functions on that necessity of how can I explain or break this down in 15 or 30 second soundbite? The answer is that you can't. So you shouldn't try. And if people want to sort of engage in these discussions, cool, great, we should. Then let's actually have a fulsome discussion about it rather than just some sort of clickbait language and 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 key bite terms um, that people are either going to get infuriated with or or latch on to. You know, I get criticized by friends for this, uh, what I'm about to say, but Fox News is genius. The people that are running Fox News now, I mean, Roger Ailes is gone. But I mean, the way that that station can take something like critical race theory and reframe it into that 15 second thing that you just mentioned is it's it's uncanny how often they're able to do that. And I think it's it's a skill that Democrats just don't have, quite frankly. I, I've always been really impressed, just on the right in general, with how they're able to define these things on their terms and then really push it home. Like even even the concept of woke, which came up during the Black Lives Matter movement, that's almost become now something that can't really be used seriously because it's been ridiculed so much uh, by Fox and other right wing organizations. So I don't agree with what they what they say at all. But in terms of pushing propaganda successfully and framing these discussions on their terms, I mean, they're 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 masters at it. And I, I see the same thing sort of happening with with critical race theory. It's not about what it is anymore. It is interesting. Have a listen to it. You'll be enlightened. For when you have those, okay. for when you okay. have those discussions with your families. <laughs>
Yeah, that's important. As you should have discussions with your yes. families yes. that are reduced to, you know, sort of 15 second sound bites. Sit yes. down, yeah. have critical discussions about critical race theory and other important issues. Yep. You um, can sit down yes. uh, with your kids for some mac and cheese and then say, kids, let's discuss critical race theory. See where that goes. Well, but 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 seriously, I mean, you, you poke fun at it, but, <laughs> you know, we, we do. People need to discuss these things. We need to be talking about this stuff, right? Um, because if you don't, it's like so many other things. Um, where where are people going to ultimately get that information, right? Um, I mean, we could – there are all kinds of comparator issues we could probably tackle. I'm not going to go off on a tangent. But the point, the point remains, if you don't critically discuss issues of the day – People will learn about them elsewhere. They will find information somehow, some way. Um, and then, you know, then it's a crapshoot. It's a crapshoot in terms of what they ultimately turn yeah. to, right? Within um, the family, yes. Uh, you know, I was talking to my mom about this a couple of weeks ago, just about how maybe it's time for people to keep their politics to themselves. Like, not not in like a you should shut up kind of way, but just a, like, it's, especially in the United States, like, there's it's very divided. It's very polarized. It's almost impossible to have an actual discussion where, where both sides are listening and offering up critique. Like it's, it's just not that way at all. And so maybe we should go back to the days where it's just your politics or your business and you can go vote. Um, but let's maybe remove it from polite society for a while uh, just to lower the temperature. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Well, I, yeah, I don't think it's a bad thing given how polarized things have become, right? I think it's the polarization that's the issue. It's not people discussing issues of politics that's the problem. The problem is, is how polarized those issues have become. Well, it's how they um, discuss it, right? I mean, it's just yeah. name calling and whatever. So it's not really discussing it. Yeah. Yes. Just open attacks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're not going to get anywhere with that. I agree with you. Yeah. Anyway. All right. On that note, you and any, any messages you'd like to give to our listeners before we wrap up? I, I don't think so. I hope everyone's right. enjoying their long weekend. Yeah, um, I'm not. staying safe. I don't have fun. That. Yeah, I'm. I'm envious of uh, of you guys. I'm. I'm. I'm at work. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, thanks for joining us, everybody, for episode sixty three. Uh, don't miss any show. Make sure you're subscribing. Open your podcast app of choice. Do a search in there. Subscribe. It's free, uh, and you can get new episodes downloaded automatically. Uh, or you can subscribe to us on YouTube or SoundCloud. Uh, and social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're on all of those. And you can sign up for our newsletter as well at prlawpodcast.club. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. Recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. Welcome to episode 63 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, along with Ewan Christie. Hello, Cameron. Ewan is an employment lawyer based in Hong Kong. <laughs> oh, let's do that again. <laughs> <laughs>